But I want to talk to you today and begin to teach um, really, really out of two positions. The last place the Israelites camped um, in the wilderness and the first place that they camped uh, in the promised land. And um, if you haven't watched uh, last Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday night, go back and watch that. We talked about the wilderness and the importance of it and how we never have to leave it because the wilderness can become your promised land. Because the wilderness is simply a place of stripping away to where all you have is him. And that sounds pretty promised land to me. And but in Numbers 3349, it says they camped by the Jordan from Beth Jismoth as far as Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. Um, the word uh, Acacia Grove actually is Shittim. And that is the final place where the Israel stayed on their long journey through the wilderness. Um, something very important about this Acacia Grove is um, through the, throughout the wilderness, the Acacia wood was very prominent. This is what they built the tabernacle out of mainly was a lot of acacia wood because it was so prominent in the area. Um, this is also what was uh, a piece of the cross was made up of, the cross that Jesus was put upon. It was made of pine and many other materials, but acacia wood was part of it. And that's not a big deal to you, uh, but it is to me because the... The same wood that built the tabernacle was the same wood that held Jesus in the same area that Jesus was crucified. Um, and that's important because the last place that they would have camped in the wilderness would have been the last place they would have gathered wood. And so the wood that they would have carried across the Jordan to come and camp on the other side into the promised land would have been the same wood that Jesus carried on his journey from the city to the top of the mountain. And this is a big deal because they literally were carrying the cross and did not know it uh, because it hadn't happened yet. And so they carry this wood across and they burn it at some point. We know that Jesus was like a burnt offering unto us. Um, the first place that they come to, it talks about in Joshua 4.19, it says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. Gilgal is actually the same place um, as Golgotha. It's the same name. And so this is not the same exact spot where Jesus was crucified that we know of. It could be. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if I get to heaven and find out that was the exact spot because God is that um, uh, methodical in the way that he does things, the way that he lays things out for us to try to grab a hold of what he's trying to say. So so they camped on Golgotha in Gilgal, as they call it here, um, which is the same exact place. So it's the first place where Israel stayed in the promised land, and this is also where Jesus was crucified on the same mountain. So they literally, from the wilderness, from uh, the slavery into the journey of learning how to only depend upon God across the Jordan, carrying the glory of God in the tabernacle, encased in acacia wood, carrying acacia wood to keep warm, camped 
at the top of that mountain burnt that wood around the temple that was the tabernacle of meeting is the exact same place where Jesus was crucified. And I just want <clears throat> to say that when carrying our cross into the promised land, when, when we're made to carry the cross, when we decide to pick up the cross every day and carry it, it's not just to remember what Jesus did for us, but it's to remember our unfaithfulness to Him and the unmerited love that we received. And so I, I can't imagine what it was like for the Israelites, but I would... I would uh, presume to say that as they stepped across the Jordan carrying that wood, they couldn't help but remember what God had done for them throughout the wilderness, the way that he had provided, what he had uh, given them, the laws that were given, the people that were lost, the people that were gained, uh, the slavery that they had been bought out of to come into bond servants of Jesus Christ, of the Father, knowing only what he provides. And we need that wilderness, that separation to take place in our life because when we step into what we call the promised land, the world is going to offer us many other things, which if you continue to study the Bible from this point on, you find out a lot of them chose the things of the world and stepped away from what God had delivered them. They forgot the unmerited love the Father had lavished upon behind the smell of the burning of the acacia wood. It no longer was a pleasing aroma to them. They had found new things to burn, new ways to sacrifice unto false gods. In Micah 6, 5, it says, Oh, my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam the son of Beer answered him from acacia grove to Gilgal that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. This scripture is, is really highlighting for the people to earnestly remember. It is, it is a callback from the prophet Micah telling them, remember. Do you remember the journey from Shittim or Acacia Grove to Gilgal or Golgotha? Do you remember the journey? Do you remember what you carried? Do you remember how we stopped in the middle and we put the stones out? Do you remember this? And so that just wants you to earnestly remember. I'm not going to be long today. I don't, I don't feel it to go long today. Um, but we need to learn the importance of the journey and never rem- forget where we came from. We need to always remember. We need to always remember. And that's really what the Lord was bringing back to me this morning was remembrance. Remember where you've been. And don't forget to pay the debts that you owe. We, we do. Uh, Jesus paid the debt for us to receive salvation, but we owe him a debt. We owe him our entire life, and we should never forget that debt. And we should always pay that debt every single day. And we need to remember to... Be careful about who we let in our life. And be careful what we let out of our mouths. Because our words have power and the people we let in our lives have power to control our mouth by way of influence of what they speak into us, over us, and around us. 
In Micah 7, 5, it says, Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. We need to guard the doors of our mouth. And then the last thing that I want to to speak to you about um, is... In our journeys, we all have dark days. We all have struggles. We all have people that are talking about us behind our backs. People that are doubting what we're doing, trying to follow God. Micah 7, 8. He says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. Be a light to me. So there's a promise here that when you find yourself sitting in the darkest parts of your journey, God will be your light. This is the same thing that the Israelites found that was not spoken but just was given uh, throughout the wilderness when they were following a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. That in their darkest times, the pillar of fire led them in the direction that they should go. So no matter how dark it gets, no matter how... Uh, hard it gets to follow Jesus, just remember that He promises to be the light in your darkest days. And if you're not seeing the light, it's because you're not opening your eyes. We simply need to open our eyes and look upon the one who's been pierced. We need to follow Him. We need to do what He did. And one of the the big things that I continue to minister on and don't believe that I'll ever stop ministering on is if you didn't see Jesus doing it, why are you? If you didn't see God ministering that way through the Son, why are you? If you didn't see Jesus handling His finance that way, then why are you? Did you find a better way? Did you come up with some new secret that was better than the King of Kings had? Did you find a better way to love people? Did you find a better way to lead people? Did you find a better way to build up people? Did you find a better way to respect his house? I think not. I think you found an easier way that meets your methods and not his. It's a similar thing that David found when he went to get the tabernacle and he began to move it to the city of David and he put wheels on it. And he began to have them push it and people began to die. He thought he had found a better way. When the tabernacle was never supposed to be rolled, it was supposed to be carried. Just like now... Jesus is not supposed to be rolled around. He's supposed to be carried. We're supposed to carry Him, and when we don't carry Him, but we expect Him to only carry us, or we expect to change the way that we carry Him, then people around us begin to die. Because only His method and His way saves. Now yes, David did end up getting it to the city of David on wheels, but the cost was high. 
Every 10 paces, he had to sacrifice a bull and dance with all of his might in order to get it to where he wanted to go. He had to embarrass himself in front of all of his people, his wife, who would look down upon him, who would scorn him. The sacrifice was not needed, but it was required because he changed the way the glory of God was going to be carried or moved. I am convinced that if he would have just knocked the wheels off of it and carried it, that he probably wouldn't have had to done that. But I'm glad he put wheels on it because we get to learn a very valuable lesson that we don't need to change the way the glory of God is being carried, the way that the kabod of God is being moved around, that we simply need to obey the ways that were set before us, study the scriptures, and stop trying to come up with a new way to raise money, to fundraise, to come up with newsletters, but just worship the king. We don't need to find a new way to build a church. He gave us the model. Preach, repent, and turn, and be baptized. But we live in a society to where we think that it has become our mandate to convince people to follow Jesus when he never said for us to convince them. He said, preach the gospel, make disciples, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have been given, freely give. But we spend most of our time preaching the gospel as if it's a recruitment letter trying to get someone to join a tribe because we have something more awesome than them when there's no power being put before them. So why would they come to your side when you look more like them than anything else? As we begin to build works uh, in many different places, as we begin to build the work in India, I taught it this way. Um, as we're building the work here in Rome, Georgia, I'm teaching it this way, is that we are not going to evangelize the way that you believe in evangelism. Your job is to convict someone in such a way that they'll say a prayer and then you come back and say you led someone to Jesus. Your job is to come up with some type of miracle and word of knowledge so that they'll say some type of prayer so that you can come back and say that you did something great. All that you're proving is, is that you're a wicked and perverse generation because a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign. We don't need a sign. Yes, miracles are the children's bread. I see people healed in amazing ways everywhere that I go, but I'm never doing it out of a a, a position or a, an agenda to get them to say some prayer. I want to birth them into relationship, and only they can find that on their own. I can't do that for them. I can show them who he is out of me with the fullness of him flowing through me, and then they will want what's in me. Those that have uh, been out with me, I don't approach people usually to evangelize. I don't go and pray for everybody. I just exhort Jesus out of my pores of my body and they're drawn to me. They come up and say things like, man, I think I know you. Or just being around you convicts me. I've had people come up and say, hey, I just wonder, could you pray for me? And I never said anything about Jesus. They can see it on me. Never once did Jesus walk into a city and go up and preach the kingdom so that they would come into the kingdom. He walked into the room and they knew who he was because he was so different than everybody else and he began to heal the sick because they were a wicked and perverse generation. 
And unless they see miracle signs and wonders, they simply would not believe. That's why we use it, so they will believe. But it's never to get them to say a prayer. It's to birth them into the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And so they will remember the journey of which they came and the faithfulness of God throughout that time of the unmerited love that they received. I believe that that literally means that that is the glory of God. The glory of God is the the ability to remember all the times throughout your past where you should have died, could have died, and would have died, and you didn't because of the unmerited love of Christ. That he protects you, that he saved you, even when you didn't know him, even when you wouldn't be in relationship with him, even when you knew about him but chose something else. That is the glory of God. Now, there's many other versions of the glory of God. It's so big and so vast, we could never cover them all. But this is the one that we see the most. And so I'm just really sick of seeing religion do things to better build their kingdom instead of doing it the way he told us to do to build his kingdom. It doesn't take all of that. It does take wild worship. It does take sacrifice. It does take loving people when they don't deserve it because he first loved us. It does take so many things. But it don't take the lights. It doesn't take the greeters at the door. It doesn't take the comfortable seating. It doesn't take the tithe offering envelope in the back seat to remind them that they need to give. What if we just preached the gospel and people knew to give because the Bible said so? What if we just lived the kingdom and people were drawn to him because the king was in us? What if we stopped worrying about our numbers and people's opinions and perspectives of us and fear of man and we just lived radical for Jesus in the same way that the disciples lived radical for Jesus, not the leaders of today. Most of them make me sick. They don't look like Jesus. They look like different versions of themselves that they've created because the world is looking for that. We don't need superstars. We need sold-out lovers for Jesus that would not back down when they take a metal rod and shove it in their side. That will continue to preach Jesus. Everyone talks about being a martyr. You know what my definition of a martyr is? It's not going to a mission field and dying while you're there. It's preaching the gospel and the kingdom while they burn you alive. When they strip your skin off. A woman come up to us uh, that was with us for a little bit and she was talking about how she was going to be a missionary and she believed that she was going to be martyred. And the Lord gave me this whole vision. And I asked her, I said, could you love them? Could you love them as they fillet the skin off your body? Could you love them as they fillet the skin off your body right after the men that held you captive because you believe in Jesus raped you multiple times? Could you then look in their eyes as they're filleting the skin off of your body and you're in so much pain and agony and the blood of life is literally leaving you and look at them and say, I forgive you. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And even though you've done a wicked thing today, there is still forgiveness. And he will receive you. 
That's martyr. Not, I was in a mission field and I was in a car crash and I died. That's not martyred. You just moved to another piece of the world and was living life and died. I believe that the definition to be martyred for Christ is the last thing on your lips is a moment of salvation for someone other than yourself. That it's literally your life being poured out. To be a martyr, it must look like Jesus' martyrdom. That is the definition of martyrdom. That it looks like Him. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He's in pain. And the thief is beside Him on the cross. And one begins to mock him and the other says, do you, not even, do you not even have any conviction now? Don't you know that this is the Son of God? Have mercy on me. Today you will be with me in paradise. In a moment to where most people would only think of themselves... And people want to get off on this excuse by saying, yeah, but he was God. No, he wasn't. He was a man. He was fully a man with the ability to be God in any moment if he would have chose to do so. But the moment he touched it, salvation would have left because we couldn't follow after him. Because we can do what he did as a man, but we cannot do what he did as God. That's why he said, walk as I walk and do greater things. Because we can do what he did as a man and greater things than what he did as a man. But we can't do what he did as a God or greater things than what he did as God. As a man pierced, blood pouring out, so many things happening. I just read an article from the, the Shroud of Torn where they, they now have believed that Jesus sustained over 600 wounds. 600 parts of his body were bleeding at one time. This includes where the, the thorns were shoved into his skull. Not his skin, his skull. They believed that it was put on so hard that it would have had, they would have had to stepped on his head and pulled it out with some type of tool to remove it. Because now with the, the shroud of torn, which I believe to be true, they show fractures in the skull where they push the thorns into the skull, into the bone itself. With all of that happening and all of that taking place after carrying the cross, he still was more focused on those that had drug him there and those beside him that needed saving other than himself. So I end with this. I challenge you to re-examine your journey and remember what he's delivered you out of. Think about the debts that you owe, and if it's ones that you can pay, pay them. Get things right. And never end another day without pouring out the debt offering that you owe Jesus that you'll never be able to fulfill. You'll never be able to pay it. But it is too religious and too messagey of grace to say, I can never pay back Him what He did. We know that. But it is so wrong of you to sit around and not even try. It is so wrong of you to not live a life that is poured out like a drink offering. Not because you can pay him back, but you can pay him back by telling others. By living a lifestyle that challenging everyone around you just because you decide to live holy. 
Just because you decide to live righteous. Just because when someone begins to cuss around you, you won't stand for it. When someone begins to talk about somebody that's not in the room, you won't stand for it. No matter how high up on the podium you believe they are or how low down they are, you cannot stand for unrighteousness, unholiness any longer. It doesn't matter what crowd it pushes you out of. It doesn't matter what room it brings you out of. It matters what room it brings you into. Because there's a place in heaven that is reserved for only the holy and the righteous. Those that stood up to everyone that was doing wrong and said, we simply cannot do it this way. You are wrong for doing it this way. And I'm not telling you this because I want you to, to know that you're wrong. I'm telling you this because I need you to be right. And it's not so that you feel good either. It's because you begin to have a burden for those that are simply doing things that are wrong, that are sinning. And we need to be the ones that help them. So Jesus, have mercy on us and help us. Everybody stand. Jesus, today as we come to you, our heart cries that you would use your Holy Spirit to reveal yourself to us once again so that we would remember that we would never have a momentary glimpse of a positional reality to where we're not holy and where we're not righteous or at least going after it. That we would never do things just to fit in with the world that you told us that we're not of. But we would be in it, but not of it. Separated by, not just because your word said so, but because the life that we live. That every room that we walk into, people would look and go, there's something different about you. I just had to come talk to you. The power would flow out of us because we're filled with the Holy Ghost. And it would no longer just be tongues. But it would be power that breaks the back of the enemy. That you would raise up a generation that will no longer live in religion. But will refuse the religiosity mandate of the world and of today in order to step into a greater level of relationship with the one who died and rose again. That we would become a pleasing aroma to you. That it would be well done, my good and faithful servant, at the end of every day, not just at the end of our life. I ask for mercy for those that are beginning on this journey, that are immature and don't understand but that you would birth in them the reality that it's okay for them to be immature because you love them right where they're at and to pretend to be somewhere that they're not would destroy their ability to receive what you have for them in this position in their life.
Raise up fathers that have been fathered correctly and destroy the lives of the ones that have not. Bring forth true sons and daughters that will learn what it's like to be fathered so that they can then be fathers to the generation that's coming that's going to need it more than ever before. And may it never be about us. May it always be about you. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.